Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. Welcome back to Diabetics Doing Things. Uh, We are telling the amazing and often crazy stories of type 1 diabetics and the things that they do all across the world. Uh, Today, my very special guest is not a type 1 diabetic, but we are looking to add value on the show uh, to people living with type 1 diabetes. So uh, please welcome my very special guest, Mr. Vinny Todorich. Vinny, welcome. Uh, Rob, thanks for having me on, man. This, This is great. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Vinny, uh, Vinny is Hollywood's go-to guy for health and fitness. Uh, and let me see if I can try to list your accomplishments here. And please correct me if I lose or lose anything or, or miss something. I'm hoping you get some of them wrong, and it might sound better than what you have. <laughs> well, uh, here's what I got. Let's see what. Let's see if we can maybe make some up on the fly. Even uh, so, you're the host of uh, the hit podcast, Fitness Confidential. Um, you're a public speaker, best-selling author of Fitness Confidential, Adventures in the Weight Loss Game. Uh, and one of my favorites is you're known as America's Angriest Trainer. Uh, that's, I think that's definitely my favorite. And you've been a personal trainer for 30 years. So how's that for a start? Uh, that's pretty close. We, we've backed away from calling me America's Angriest Trainer a few years ago. And uh, I've been training people for 36 years. But you're right in there. You, you, I, you know, I guess if you go to... You know, Wikipedia or something, it might have me at 30 years, but it was probably written six years ago. So sure. who knows when people put that in or how that, I don't even know how that stuff is curated, to be honest. Um, and, and the angriest trainer thing is funny. That that came around when I first um, started messing around with the computer and the Internet and doing this. And um, we were trying to come up with a kind of a catchphrase. So. Uh, I said, you know, I'm going to call myself America's trainer because I'm trying to help the people of America. Right. And my better half, uh, Serena, said, you should call yourself America's angriest trainer. And I said, but I'm not angry. And she goes, but you're not angry at people. You're angry for people because they've been, you know, fed a a load of bull. And I said, okay, uh, I'm America's angriest trainer. And and lo and behold, that worked really fine. But then my show got bigger and bigger and bigger. And when that happened, I started doing television shows. You know, people started inviting me onto national shows and national radio shows and what have you. And uh, they, the first question out of their mouth was, you don't seem so angry. Why are you calling us? <laughs> and I was like, I'm spending half my interviews explaining this America's thing, as I'm doing right now, by the way. Right. Yeah. Consequence <laughs> for your own success, I guess. Yeah. So... We, we backed away from it. It was called the Angriest Trainer Podcast. We gave it the same name as the book, Fitness Confidential Podcast, so that, you know, w- when you're branding stuff, it should all kind of match, I guess. Yeah, uh, I'm totally not agree. Branding. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know anything about branding, but I said, let's just, let's just call everything the same thing and then people can find me. And, uh, well, you know, something that I, you know, in that same branding conversation that I really believe in is, you know, the best branding is great content. 
uh, you know, so obviously you're delivering on that. So um, whether you're the angriest trainer or fitness confidential, obviously, you know, you add a ton of value and, and, uh, and, and are clearly an expert and, and authority in your field. So today, you know, as we talk about, uh, you know, and I will talk a little bit about my, my background as an athlete uh, later on, but how do you, you know, what the things that make you angry that of the bowl that you said that, that people are that are fed on a daily basis, um, you know, what are the what are those things that make you the most, uh, you know, get you the most riled up to try to help people? Well, you know, just the perpetuation of, of certain uh, theories that that are just hammered away as truths that have nothing to do with being healthy or losing weight or being in shape. Um, uh, one being that, you know, sugar has no fat in it, therefore it can't make you fat, when in fact sugars are what makes you fat. Um, and the other one is fat will make you fat. And in fact, fat eating fat will not make you fat. <laughs> so, you know, just those kinds of things where it's, it's exactly the opposite of what people are saying, you know. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of propaganda out there, you know, that there's religions <clears throat> when it comes to diet. You know, there's the paleo guys on one side and there's the uh, vegans on the other side. You can almost, it's almost as if uh, it's left wing and white wing politics. And, right. It's uh, like a bipartisan food groups. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of caught in the middle because I'm saying let's all eat whole foods. And then people try to lump me into one group or the other. Well, you hate vegans. Well, when did I say that? Uh, well, you talk about eating meat, therefore you must hate vegan. Uh, no, no, did not say that. I work with a lot of vegans, you know. So uh, that kind of stuff happens all day long. And I, I, like I said, you know, I find myself defending things more than helping people. And I guess that frustrates me more than anything else. Right, because it takes you away from like your not only your calling, but like your the where you can be the most effective. Yeah, you know, it's like, let's get away from the minutia, you know, let, let's walk away from, you know, uh, you know, all of this, you know, just chatter. Let, let's break through the chatter and let's talk about the truth. Uh, you, you know, wow, I haven't thought about this in a couple of years, but this is a diabetes podcast, so I might as well talk about it here. Uh, I got into big trouble with the type 1 diabetes crowd. Did, did, you? did you know about that? No, I could not find anything about that. Oh, wow. Uh, well, it went away really fast when they realized that I wasn't who they thought I was. But it just goes to show you how quickly something can happen online. Um, it was a Saturday night a couple of years ago. And uh, Serena and I went out for dinner. And uh, I'm not a guy that brings my phone with me everywhere. I got back from dinner and my, my telephone was lighting up, you know, my smartphone. And I turned on my computer and emails from everyone around me and my organization like, oh my god you need to go to twitter you need th there's a fire you need to put out oh my god i'm like what i i just left twitter an hour and a half ago and you know i had a couple of uh you know vodkas in me and i'm sure. back home i'm reading this and i'm like what just happened and why is the type 1 diabetes people coming after me it, it, i didn't know what was going on right uh, because the diabetes people I'm always in good shape with, you know, type two. I'm, I'm the guy that was always explaining that type one and type two diabetes have nothing to do with each other. 
uh, one you cause and the other one you're born with. Child, you know, juvenile diabetes, type one diabetes. You know, and I've I've always been the guy educating people on that and trying to explain what that is. And all of a sudden, you know, these people are. I, I mean, and they were vicious. Oh. I don't know if you know this, but the diabetes people are vicious. You know, it's actually something that I'm pretty proud of, honestly, because there there aren't that many type one diabetes, like top type type one diabetics, especially just in the U.S. There's only like one and a half million at the most. So pretty small group, but right. you stir the pot a little bit and the vipers will come out and they'll take you down. I know United Healthcare uh, made a huge mistake a couple months ago, denying a little, a little boy, some, uh, a continuous glucose monitor uh, from his insurance and like 50,000 signatures in about two hours of people and emails to these, to, to the CEO of United Healthcare. Uh, so yeah, I'm a little bit proud of the uh, of the vitriol that they can spew out. So uh, so you get you get back, you get it on Twitter. Uh, what did you find? Um, well, they were saying boycott this guy. Don't go to his website. Go, he's got a book. Go write bad reviews for his book. You know, I'm like, what what did I do? What did I? Do? Oh my God, what what is this? You know, because I I always have a good relationship, right, with, with type one diabetes and. So I go back through all these tweets, you know, hundreds of tweets and all that. I try to find the beginning of it. And uh, it started, um, it, it was when they put out an American Girl doll, you know, with for, you know, with the little pump and the whole thing. Yep. You know, you remember that whole thing, which, yep. which was a good thing. And someone had tweeted at me. And here's the irony to all of this. Serena said to me, Serena's my better half. She said, look. Um, you try to do everything yourself. You, your assistant basically sits there and polishes her nails and you won't let her do anything. Why don't you start delegating because you're killing yourself? So I said to Wendy, I said, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get on my spinner. I have a spinner in my office. I'm going to try to exercise for a half an hour. Read my tweets to me and I will tell you what to answer. Right? Right. That was mistake number one, two, three. (laughs) So it started off pretty innocent, just a little delegation. Uh, And by the way, this is the first time I'm trying this, by the way. way. So Wendy, I bet you never thought this podcast was going to go this way, right? (laughs) Hey, I I love the direction it goes no matter matter what direction it is. So this is great. I'm loving this. Yeah, well, you know, Wendy is sitting at my desk and she's tweeting and she goes, Okay, so-and-so says this and this and this. And I went, okay, um, tell them this. And she would write it down and send a tweet off. And she goes, someone is asking about this American Girl doll. And I went, what is, what is an American Girl doll? I, I don't know what that is. And right. she Googled it, and she's showing it to me while I'm on the spinner. And she's like, oh, look, it's cute. Oh, my God, look at this cute cute little thing, these dolls and the whole thing. She goes, yeah, my girlfriend's kids, I think, you know, they love these things. And on and on and on. And they're doing one with uh, for type 1 diabetes, for kids with diabetes, showing them that it's not shameful to have a pump uh, and all this different kinds of stuff, right? And I said to Wendy, that's great. So say, oh, my God, that's great. And then I said, now send out a second tweet that says, um, I wish American Girls dolls would put out a thing uh, with you showing little girls with tennis shoes, maybe a jump rope or something. <laughs> now, now, Wendy conflated those two tweets. Got it. <laughs> and you can only imagine what came out. 
Right, right? because I think nothing upsets a type 1 diabetic more than uh, somebody confusing it with type 2 diabetes. Or saying that a kid should just go get a jump rope. Right. Or whatever I said like that, or tennis shoes or whatever, which was not what I said at all. And so now I'm looking at this, and these people are calling for my head. Literally, I should die. I, sh- you know, you know, everyone needs to boycott whatever I'm doing. Go figure it out. He's dumb. He doesn't know what he's talking. I went on his website. He's such a dumbass trainer, and I, all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my god. But throughout the whole thing, I didn't get mad at one tweet because I know people with kids that have diabetes. And I know that these people worry that they're going to wake up every day and their kid is going to be dead. You know, I know what parents go through. And so I didn't jump on any of these people. I just kept trying to say to them, hey, let me get to the bottom of this. Uh, I'm sorry. I, it was a mistweet and the whole thing. And literally, they weren't giving up. Oh, sure, you're saying that now because it's going to hurt your pocketbook. And, and so on and so forth, as people do when they get upset. Right. right. right? And I was like, no, no, no. As a, and so I found the two or three big culprits, like the, the big guys that, that were kind of leading this whole charge. And I wrote to him privately on Twitter that night and said, you know, it's now like four in the morning. I didn't go to bed that night. And uh, I said, look, I would love to have you guys on my podcast so that we can discuss this. Let's have a real conversation. Obviously, there was a mistweet and they came on and a lot of good came out of it. That's why you can't find anything about it, because we put it to rest. And they understood that I understood the difference between type one, type two and so on and so forth. Uh, But that night, no one understood that. Does right. that make sense? It does. I, I I'm not surprised that people say mean things on Twitter. I'm not. <laughs> I think living living today, like those, it seems like every day there's a new, you know, somebody's calling for someone's head, and it gets you know out of control. Like the the viral nature of people's passions, I think, like easily can spill out of control. Yeah, and you know, I'm glad in a weird sort of way, a lot of good came out of it. And I became friends with those two people on, you know, online. I'm not friends with them in real life uh, because they live somewhere else in the world. One, one woman was from uh, England and the other guy was from the East coast. And I had them both on and we, we had a long, we hasted out. We talked about it. We, they understood that I understood, which was all anyone wants to do around this. Right. I mean, you, right, you just right. want people to understand what it is and, and how how tragic it can be. And I'm, I'm definitely going to include a link to that podcast in the show notes just to give everybody kind of a peek behind the curtain. Um, and I think a big thing that type 1 diabetics struggle with, uh, parents to parents of type 1s, it's just awareness, right? Because you don't have, especially with chronic illness, unless it affects you or your family or somebody close to you, I mean, you're living your life day to day and you're not thinking about what somebody else is going through, what the differences between the two diseases are, right? So when you're when you're a type 1 diabetic, like you said earlier, talking about the American Girl doll, you want to know that uh, you don't have to be ashamed of who you are and what you have to do to survive. And I think when that becomes threatened, uh, our first reaction as people, I think, is just to get defensive. I know myself uh, personally when I, when people would ask me questions, even just curious about giving shots or testing my blood sugar, um, I'm thinking back to a specific incident uh, when I was in college. One of the upperclassmen on my college basketball team was just asking me, and I got really mad at him and I cursed at him. 
And I, and then I, you know, I still think about it today. Like he was like the nicest guy. He was just asking me about it, but it's just a defensive kind of soft spot for people. So, um, you know, when you feel like someone doesn't understand you and I think like, like you said, the end, the end game, the goal was just to say, Hey, I understand you. And I know that, you know, the difference now. And that's all that most people want. Yeah, you know, I don't. I think you're absolutely right about that. There's, there's nowhere near the type of education in and around it that there needs to be, um, which is sad. Um, and, and you are right. People don't sit around. You know, when when you when you have your health, you have everything. And you know, when you're diabetic, I mean, every day you have to pump insulin or equal out sugar, and that can, that could be challenging at best. I mean. And then when you think about kids, you know, you, you're sending your kid off to school. I mean, what was that like for you as a kid? Uh, did you did you develop it when you were one or two or were you a bit older or what was the deal? So I, I was diagnosed when I was 16. So um, I was really independent. Um, and my mother uh, is a nutritionist and owned a Curves for 12 years. So was very hands-on and like preparing me and and was instrumental in my success as a type one but um my first big hurdle in terms of uh, you know parents and relationships with their kids and letting them go was going to school um because i went to school out of state and i was hell-bent on doing that i wanted to go kind of experience the world a little bit um and you know there were some phone conversations you know with my parents where we were yelling at each other about blood sugars and about numbers and about going out drinking with friends. And, uh, I think, you know, like you said, every parent's worst nightmare is that their kid's not going to wake up one day because of improper blood sugar management or something goes wrong with a pump or technology. And, you know, those, those are heavy emotional things. And, you know, like you said, now, uh, I volunteer and talk to newly diagnosed families at, uh, one of the hospitals here in Texas. And, just like the the reassurance that seeing someone who has grown up with type 1 diabetes and is, you know, I get up there and I look pretty normal. Uh, I have a pump on and that's about it. But I'm a fit guy. I'm a handsome devil. And they're like, oh, okay, my kid's going to be okay. Um, and I think, you know, that's what, you know, that you're as a parent, you're, you deal with the day-to-day and, you know, some, uh, some people even call them type 3 diabetics because they have to think about every carb that they put in the kid's body and all the insulin ratios and testing the blood sugar. So they basically have the disease as well. And I think it's a constant fear in the back of their mind that, you know, that they've done something wrong or that, they, that you know, their kid is going to be unhealthy because of a decision they made. And, you know, like you know and, uh, and has been said over and over, on many other podcasts other than yours and mine, like fear, living your life on a fear based is, you know, just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, um, you're right about that. And I, you know, I, you know, my thing, my whole thing is no sugars, no grains, you know, because, I, you know, I, I find that there's so much sugar in everything that we're just killing people in society um, with all of the sugar. Um, and, and because of that, um, there, there's a Facebook group with my name on it. Uh, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a Facebook group that's actually called Vinny Tortorich's No Sugars, No Grains. Now, you would think that I, I own that group, but I don't. Uh, I'm a member of that group like everyone else. Um, and I see some type 1 diabetics in there, and they talk about being very low carb just so that they don't have to pump extra insulin. 
Uh, do you come across people like that, or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, because I, I do a Whole30 um, diet nutrition plan, and so it's very, very similar. No sugar, no sugar added, no grains uh, for 30 days at a time. And then I live my day-to-day life about 80-20 of that with like a nice balance. But I talk, uh, the biggest thing, uh, the biggest challenge that I run into or the many questions that I get about living a you know, lower-carb, low, no-sugar, no-grain diet um, is treating low blood sugars. So when you're, um, you've eaten so few carbs and taken more insulin than, uh, than you've eaten, and then how do you correct quickly enough? Because without eating sugar, um, you know, it's, it, you'd have to eat four apples, you know, back to back to back to back. And that's not always the most convenient option. Right. So, um, something that I do, I, I have a, uh, there's a cold press juice company here in Dallas that I really like because it's there's no sugar added and I can still get you know 30 to 40 grams of sugar um, in a bottle pretty quickly if I need it because I think there is so much of a benefit to taking less insulin if you can and I'm again I'm not a doctor I'm not a nutritionist but just personal experience I feel better the less insulin that I that I can live with with my blood sugars in in proper healthy range. Just because insulin is a depressant, and I think that's where I get a lot of my anxiety, depression, or you know, types of thoughts, um, right. because it's it's uh, it's unnatural, and you know, my body's out of whack. So I try to live as low glycemic index of a life as I can. Yeah, it, it seems like it would make sense. Um, yeah, you know, what I preach is exactly. Um, it's exactly, you know, not not exactly at Whole30. The problem I have with Whole30 is what do you do after 30 days? And right. that's kind of where I jump in and, and say, well, now you got this, that, and the other thing. You know, you have, you have more than the Whole30. You have the whole lifetime. Right. Uh, if you, um, But, yeah, it, that kind of protocol works um, to, in case people don't want to follow NSNG that, you know, Atkins um, is good. You know, the original Atkins, not all this Atkins crap as you can eat <laughs> and i used to say that paleo was good but paleo has become I, I don't know what paleo has become but people are going well honey was around back in a paleolithic era so <laughs> you can just put honey on everything right, right. okay well that's not going to work tell that to your liver you know uh so i don't know it's uh it's all very interesting what people think and how they think it you know yeah, and and I think I'm I'm trying to think of the way to structure this question. Like, is it is it as simple as you know, if you have the discipline to uh, to commit to something and stick with it, like you're going to pay off. And if not, you know, how do you how do you keep that balance? Like, what what's your you know on the on an emotional level? Because so many people's relationship with food is emotional, and we love good tasting food. Um, and breaking sugar addiction can be very difficult, especially for somebody who is unknowingly live their entire life consuming large amounts of sugar um you know what's the hardest part for people do you think or what's your what's your advice to them um you know adopting that lifestyle well you know literally the hardest part for almost anyone is letting go of of beliefs if that makes any sense at all um you know, you've been living with this belief that fat is bad for you, you know, uh, saturated fat. Oh, my God, that's that's the absolute worst. I mean, you know, and, and you know, so you have to let go of those kind of beliefs. And and once you can do that, you can literally move away from 
the rest of this, right? Um, I, I had a doctor on the other day, and he 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 gave this example, and I'm gonna, I'm I'm thinking about I'm gonna start using this as my own, I think, because. Nice. <laughs> Uh, you know, but I, you know, I should give him credit. I can't remember which doctor said this, but um, if there was a guy, let's say there was a guy who went to jail and he was in jail for 30 years and there was a big story on television. He was, you know, he was uh, uh, raping and murdering 12 year old girls. Right. And this went on uh, and he, he was in jail. It was a big story and the whole thing. He was locked away 30 years later. They find out that unequivocally, it, it, it wasn't him. It, you know, uh, DNA evidence uh, was able to release him. Not only that, but other DNA ev evidence found the, the correct guy, and they finally have the correct guy in jail. And this guy is set free, and he's exonerated. Right? The question becomes: Would you let that guy babysit your 12-year-old daughter? You know, in our minds, I know when my daughter was 12 years old, there was no way in hell that guy's coming over to babysit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you right. know what I mean? It's like, well, he was an innocent guy all along, but in our minds, there had to be some smoke or fire or something around this guy, right? Even though we know he's, you know, DNA evidence has now cleared this guy 1,000%. You know, so we do that same thing with diet. Well, you know, for years we heard saturated fats are bad for you. Well, there's got to be some truth behind that. And in fact, there's absolutely no truth behind it. You know, uh, saturated fat has never caused heart disease for anyone. Uh, trans fats will, uh, but people somehow say trans fat and saturated fat in the same sentence. And it doesn't deserve that. Uh, and then you'll have these really kind of you know, left-wing wing vegans who are, you know, not your normal vegans, but the ones that will lie because they think it's good for the greater cause. And they'll say, fat is bad for you. And then a guy like me will say, well, no, it's not. And they'll say, oh, so you're telling everybody to go eat french fries. Right. No, I didn't, I didn't say that either. <laughs> you're putting those words in my mouth. Well, and I think you so, mentioned earlier, like, the use of propaganda in, like, mass media. Like, right now, I'm sure, how many shows have you been on to discuss what the health uh, oh, yeah. I mean, on my show alone, we've discussed it three times, you know, uh, and I've brought people on people smarter than me. Nicole Racine, um, uh, uh, Nina Teichos of the best selling book, uh, uh, Big Fat Surprise, uh, who's uh, an investigative journalist and uh, does research up to yin yang. And you're able to shoot holes into that that movie 20 different ways yet. Netflix is running it and no problem. People are watching it and, you know, you have uh, you have people like Dr. Grieger yelling, oh, if you eat a piece of fat, your body will get pus, literally pus. Well, where is this pus? You talk about this pus. I eat meat every day. Where's all of my pus? Right. You, you know what I mean? It's like you just made that up. That's a wholesale lie. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of other things they say. Uh, oh. They had one doctor on. Uh, he was uh, an African-American uh, vegan doctor. And he somehow linked uh, meat to, oh, I'm sorry, dairy to institutional racism. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute. Is, was this movie done by The Onion? Is this meant as a joke? <laughs> because he said, look, some, some black people 
a nice percentage of black people, Asian people, and um, Mexican people, when they drink milk, they are allergic to it. They're allergic to lactose. So uh, the government is telling you to drink milk is right on the pyramid. So that's equal to institutionalized racism. Really? We, you're making that leap. Right. That leap. Yeah. So you look at that and you go, well, this is all just a big lie. And Netflix has no problem putting it out there. Sure. Because every time we talk about it, they get more, more people to watch it, right? Right. I mean, people are going to go out tonight and, and go, oh, wait a minute. They were talking about what the hell. There must be something there. Think about it. If I put together uh, a documentary or if you put together where well, you wouldn't do it, but let's say I did it. I don't have uh, diabetes. I don't have any type 1, type 2, type uh, 1.5. I don't have any version of diabetes, right? But if I went out and did a diabetes film and got a bunch of doctors on camera to say type 1 and type 2 is exactly the same thing and these people caused it to themselves, there would be outrage, right? Right. Okay. But that's kind of what these people are doing and getting away with it. Right, because it's just within a within a context that, you know, has, I guess, people feel strongly enough about on both sides, maybe. And, you know, yeah. back to that sort of bipartisan relationship, you know, they can spark outrage from both sides and generate more conversations. Right. And, and then it becomes, what are we talking about? Right. You know, um, we have a lot of that going on right now with the media, with, uh, you know, um, uh, our current administration. And I'm not political and I don't talk politics, but I find it very interesting to watch, you know, how one side says one thing and then another side says another thing. Then we call it fake news. And then what's fake news? And everyone is out there lying and saying whatever they want. Well, how's the general public supposed to ever get the truth? Right. You know? And, and kind of in that same vein of, you know, finding the truth, for you personally, I kind of maybe outside of the, the lactose and institutional racism example, uh, what's your, I, I guess, most amusing sort of conspiracy theory that you hear around food? Um, because there's been a lot, uh, especially in, in recent years as, um, you know, people are utilizing these food sort of documentaries as entertainment. Um, what's one that just gets you, you know, shaking, shaking your head and riled up and like, really? Um, God, you, w w to come up with one is the tough part. Right. Um, um, one of the things, and, and it's not even a documentary, but when we took, uh, I think it was during, uh, president, um, it was before Obama. It was before it was, um, Clinton. Clinton made a big thing about taking, um, taking, uh, soda out of schools. Big deal. No more soda in schools. But the interesting thing is they didn't remove the soda machines. They replaced soda with fruit juices. And everybody went, oh, my God, fruit juice is so much healthier. Hmm. No, it's not. It's the same amount of sugar, if not more, in a liquid that's going right to your liver, which is causing a spike, which is causing a problem. You've done zero. As a matter of fact, I can make the argument that you made the problem worse. Right. Um, but, you know, when you hear that, oh, drink fruit juice. No, no. Eat fruit. You know, eating fruit is a lot better than, you know, from a diabetic standpoint. If you ate a piece of fruit, an apple, you're a lot better off than if you drank apple juice. Apple juice is straight sugar. Right. If you eat an apple, 
you're getting the water from it, you're getting uh, mixed with the fiber, and the release of sugar to your liver will be a lot more even. You know, you won't get that just that one big giant spike all at once. And you know, it's 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 really interesting that you that you bring that up because it's it's in a way that I've never thought about it before, which is cool because. For me, when my blood sugar is low, um, so below 80, um, I typically feel, you know, you hear people talk about feeling like drunk or slower or a little bit loopy, uh, sort of out of touch. And if I were to eat an apple, um, I would have to eat three or four full, like, you know, Granny Smith style apples, potentially to move my blood sugar, say say 40 units. So say if, if my blood sugar is 50 and I want to get it to maybe 90, 100, um, I would have to eat that many apples to do that in an amount of time where I felt better relatively quickly. I'd have to do that. I'd have to do that fast, which is not, you know, that's a lot of apples at once. So if I was to drink maybe six, eight ounces of juice, it would do the exact same thing just that in that quick instant. So like there's a small, you know, micro example, very small sample size, but you know, you see the difference of the actual absorption and the sugar spike that you get to actually see. You can literally see on a chart um, as I, you know, in real time. Yeah, you know, it, it is that instant. And, you know, whenever you take in any kind of liquid sugar, it's going right to the liver. It's passing go. It's, it's collecting $200 and it's moving on. And people just don't realize that. And I'll have parents tell me, well, what am I supposed to give my kid to drink? Well, okay, well, there's something called water. You know, have we gone past water? You know, water is what every other animal drinks, period. Right. You know, we're the only animal that goes, well, what am I supposed to drink? If you don't want me to have Gatorade and, and Nutra this and that about that and Vita water and, you know, any other kind of sugary treat, whatever happened to water? You know, when I was a kid, there was basically, when I was a kid, uh, there was basically <laughs> two uh, liquids that we consumed. Um, I grew up in, in, in the country. Um, and one was water, and the other was milk. Uh, now, too much milk after your childhood is not actually a good thing either, but water and milk. Uh, and if you want a treat, well, there's stuff like coffee and tea, right? Both containing no sugar. So the only thing of those four drinks is uh, lactose and milk. Everything else is devoid of sugar, as it should be. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 55 in a month. When I was a kid, I drank, I could tell you what I drank. I drank about 70, maybe 77 ounces of Coca-Cola per year. Now, you're saying to yourself, come on, how did you keep track of that? That's impossible. How would you know? You were a kid. You were seven. How are you keeping track of that? My dad would allow me to have uh, a Coke every time I had, every time I had, my, I got my hair cut at Frank Danino's barbershop in the country. Um, and I wasn't as interested in drinking the Coke as I was putting the nickel of the dime into the machine, pressing the button and watching the Coke come out of the bottom. Uh, oddly enough, back then, Cokes came in seven-ounce bottles. D did you know that? You're too young to know that, I right? I did not know that. Yeah. Seven-ounce bottles. Uh, Coca-Cola came in that, and that's what I drank, and my brother got one. And I'm pretty sure I did not ever finish one of those Cokes. So if I got 12 haircuts per year, if I was drinking, on average, uh, five or six ounces of Coke, I drank about seven, 70 ounces of Coke per year. 
Uh, as you know, that is now a serving if you go get a big gulp. Right. right? Uh, and some of those big gulps are bigger than 64 ounces. And that and people and they're free refills and so on and so forth. And we're sitting around and we can't figure out why there's fatty liver disease, why there's sleep apnea, why there's all of these problems, why people are getting type 2 diabetes. I mean, I mean, type 2 diabetes used to only be for alcoholics in the throes of alcoholism like there was no tomorrow, right? Now people get type 2 diabetes by the time they're 12. And we talked a little bit about an education problem earlier regarding like awareness of, of chronic disease, but the information is out there, right? Is it so, so, you know, at this point, I would say everyone knows that drinking a Coke is not good for you. Um, yet we look at all these problems. Is it just, is do people just not care? What is the, is there just no connection being made that they're, what they're doing to their bodies? Uh, I, I just help me kind of understand your perspective on, you know, the general population's relationship with sugar. Um, a lot of cognitive dissonance, uh, around things like Coke. Uh, we think of it as a quote unquote soft drink. You know, uh, it can't be that bad for you. You see Coke ads. You see a lot of, you know, young men with um, ripped up abs and chicks in bikinis playing volleyball while they're drinking Coke at the beach, you know, and this sort of thing. So it looks athletic. Um, uh, if you watch any football game, uh, a lot of football players are on the sideline uh, drinking Coke because, you know, it's fast energy, you know. Um, <laughs> and I always say this about marathons. You know, I've... I've trained a lot of people who um, they came to me after they ran their first marathon because the, the only reason they ran a marathon was because they wanted to get some weight off. And in some cases, they got to the starting line 15 or 20 pounds heavier uh, than when they uh, started training. And you, you would say to yourself, well, how can that be? Well, the myth of calorie in, calorie out, when you were asking me about all the different things that can go wrong, right? Uh, the myth of calorie in, calorie out. Uh, well, okay, um, why did this person who was expending all of these calories to run a marathon, how did that person get fat? Well, the day you decided to run a marathon, uh, you bought a Runner's World magazine. And they sell two things. They sell shoes and they, they sell sugar. They sell sugar in the form of uh, soft drinks, Cokes, uh, what have you. Um, uh, there's Gatorade, there's uh, Sports Aid, there's all these different kind of uh, sugary drinks. Uh, you have uh, goo. Uh, there's a product called goo. It's just gooey sugar. Right. You know, and it's something that there's uh, power bars, cliff bars, uh, goo chomps, where you can have your goo gelled up. Uh, and you can go on and on and on. And every bit of the way, these people are looking at it going, oh, this is obviously what the runners use, so therefore I will use it. And uh, you end up with a real problem, Right. Uh, by the time you get to your race, uh, they give you a bag, a swag bag that comes with your entry fee full of more candy and treats in the form of sports drinks and what have you. Yeah, if not a, you know, bottomless like beer happy hour at the end of it, right? With uh, you oh, know, oh, yeah. foods and all that. And pizza. Uh, look, some marathons will have like pizza stops in the middle of the marathon. I'm not being funny right now. That's a fact. Um. And I can make a, an even bigger case against grains than I could for sugar. 
Well, yeah, and uh, I would love to, and, and I think maybe I'll link to another one of your shows on grains in the show notes. I want to be conscious of your time and kind of get to what we a little bit of what we talked about earlier in terms of athletic performance uh, of a different kind. Um, you, you were telling you were telling me that when I contacted you, I buried the lead of uh, that I was once a Washington general playing foil to the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> Yeah, you know, look, growing up a kid, uh, I mean, whenever they came to the LSU uh, Pete Maravich Assembly Center, it wasn't called that when I was a kid. It was just in the LSU Assembly Center. Uh, I We looked at my dad and went, don't even think about not getting tickets because we are going. And uh, loved it. You know, even though, you know, the Washington Generals are a fake team and the whole thing, you know, there's such goofballs and the whole thing. And I've often said you guys were the Ginger Rogers. I, I mean, I wasn't this. Uh, prolific when I was nine, but uh, <laughs> you know, as I got older, I went, th- these guys are literally the Ginger Rogers of basketball because they have to do everything that Fred Astaire is doing, except they have to do it backwards with heels on. Uh, is there any truth behind that? Uh, yeah, th- there is a little bit. I think um, <laughs> the uh, the general's motto, I'll say, uh, in the and I, I typically don't, I try not to use language on this podcast, but the general's motto behind the scenes is "Don't fuck the money up." Uh, and, and what that means is just like the people are there for the Globetrotters. So don't mess up their stuff. Make sure that you're hitting all your marks. Make sure that you're hitting all your shots because it's a much better show when we're playing well. Uh, and then just like enjoy what you're doing, you know? So like you said, it's uh, doing it backwards and in heels. There was literally one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite moments in every Globetrotter show where we do an entire play in reverse and then do it again in slow motion. And I think... Uh, you know, getting to see, you know, it's it's a tough travel schedule and it's hard to to get beat by those guys all the time. And uh, they're so universally loved. But, you know, seeing all these kids run out on the floor before the fourth quarter, doing the YMCA, having the time of their lives in city after city after city all over the world. Pretty awesome. How often do you guys practice together to get the choreograph right? Uh, it's so at the beginning of every tour, you know, about 10 days. Uh, and then, you know, there's a there's a walkthrough every day. So we spend a lot of time together, We're a lot of time getting it right. Uh, I think for me, I have a newfound respect for people who are on tour. So whether that be a performing artist, like a, like a musician um, on a big tour, because th- those people, like no matter how tired you are, they don't care where you came from. They don't care that you played two shows the day before. They bought their ticket for that show, and you got to be on 100%. And so getting to see that type of experience behind the scenes and like knowing how important it was that every little thing was just right, every little detail, uh, yeah, we, it's, it's, a, it's an extensive operation. Now, you, you know, look, I've worked with a lot of rock stars, and, and of course, they're all still on tour. Uh, over the years, um, God, I love interviewing someone else on their show. <laughs> um, but now I feel like I'm doing my show because I'm interviewing you. You know, I've worked with a lot of uh, rock stars and what have you. And I have uh, two of them on tour right now. And um, they're getting older and they're still rocking out. Uh, one of them is both of them are my age or just a year or two older. And... Um, you are a guy with type 1 diabetes. Uh, I'm assuming you have a pump hooked up, or do you just yep. inject daily? I have a pump, How does yep. that play in to the fact that you're out there on the road, you're on tour, city after city, 
And you got to keep this shit together. I mean, how, I, I mean, let me add to the question. Let me double it up here. You obviously have to be a really good basketball player to even get to that level with type 1 diabetes. And you got it, you said, when you were 16. So how does all of that work? Give, give me a big picture. Uh, so it's all about preparation. I always talk about um, that type 1 diabetes just means that you have to add one or two steps to every single thing that you do for the rest of your life. So whether that's eating, exercise, uh, traveling, uh, but a tour is something, it's all of that rolled into one because you're eating terrible food because you're on the road and you stop every day at the same, at shopping malls in, you know, middle America where the best thing you got on the menu is, you know, Chinese food. Um, I, I didn't tell them that I had type one diabetes cause I, uh, at that level of professional basketball, uh, any little thing will get you moved to the bottom of the pile. Uh, because everybody's skill sets are relatively the, the same. Once you drop below the NBA, everybody's about the same, uh, with the exception of a few hundred guys in Europe. Um, so I was trying to give them every and no reason to single me out or give me extra attention. So um, I had to prepare ex- extra. Some days we'd have four or five hour practices, and I'd have to go sneak over, get a little dose from my pump, come back. Uh, or go grab a little bit of Gatorade. I had to keep Gatorade with me just in case I was on the bus at 2 a.m. Uh, a Washington general cannot stop the bus w- because the Globetrotters are on the other bus and the buses travel together. So for no reason except for death will a Washington general be helped. So uh, I was always, um, you know, I always had to have extra snacks and be prepared and, and, and have, you know, water and extra insulin and supplies on me. I figured out this, rigged up this bag where I could have about a month and a half of supplies in my backpack with me wherever I needed it all the time. Um, and so, yeah, I think I just being really diligent with my health, trying to prepare, uh, because basketball is a high stress activity and you, you're right. You have to be very good. All my teammates and including the Globetrotters are all very good. So you got to be on, you got to be ready to go. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was a challenge, um, and one that I'm glad I did and I'm glad I experienced because, you know, now if I need to go on the road for a week or 10 days, I know exactly what to do. I just fall back into my old routines, put the same stuff in the grab bag and then hit the road. What was there a, a, a real sense of, man, that, that, that Rob really loves his Gatorade, man. He, he <laughs> hugged that bottle. Did, did anyone ever pick up on that or did, uh, did you eventually tell them you had a problem or how does that work? So I would tell a few of my teammates, never any of like the brass. Uh, so a few of my teammates knew because the generals had to share hotel rooms. So we were doubling up. So my roommate, Chris, uh, he's like, man, why do you always have two Gatorades in your duffel bag? <laughs> and I would always, you know, I'd be like, hey, don't drink this Gatorade. And he's like, man, I, you know, you really love your Gatorade. So, yeah, it's very that's exactly what he picked up on. Um, because, and also, you know, I'd prick my finger every now and then people would be like, Hmm, I wonder what that is. But they just assumed that everybody else knew. So, uh, you know, my, my teammates were great guys and, uh, they, you know, they were just more curious than anything else. Cool. Yeah. You know, and now, now this, this podcast is about to take a change for the racist, but when I was a kid, all of the Harlem Globetrotters were black and all of the Washington generals were white. Uh, is there any mix where there are any white guys on the Globetrotters and any black guys on the Generals? Uh, yeah, yes to both. Uh, there's there's less white guys on the uh, on the Globetrotters, I think for good reason. Uh, white basketball players just don't do as many cool things, I think. Uh, but yeah, there uh, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of my teammates on the Generals were black as well. 
Okay, I was wondering how they were working that these days. It's like, are they still beating up on a bunch of white guys? Or well, they... you know, because the, the... It, it was the most. When you think about it, in today's world, we didn't think about it in 1972 when I was going to it. But now you look at it and go, that's the most racist thing in the world. Right. Yeah. You know, bunch of black guys beating up on a bunch of white guys that can't play basketball. Or well, make it look like they can't play basketball, you know? Well, and I think now, you know, they bill the generals as this, like, elite bunch of, uh, of, of guys from all over the world who are this, these great basketball players. You know, even kids know that a team full of white guys, no one's going to buy that that's a, a group of elite basketball players. So, uh, you know, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting balance. But isn't it funny how we can do that, yet that, that's not considered racist? You know, it, it's it's really a form of racism when you look at it. The fact that a bunch of kids, you know, these kids are innocent kids and they can go, eh, there's no way a group of white guys is going to ever be a group of black guys. And they know that. That's not me saying that. You know, you guys know you can't sell that, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it, it's one of those really weird... Uh you know gas that's like almost too true so you can't you know I don't, I don't know if it's as much uh that we're raising kids to be good general managers of basketball teams or if it's or if it's subtle racism i really don't know uh, it's an interesting question yeah but you know but when you think about it we let it we we rock it that way you know it's like if you did it the other way around you know you know louis farrakhan would come out of the woodworks and people are going oh my god that you can't do that, and but you could do it the other way, and, and kids are going to be kids. They're going to go. Of course, they got to have black guys on the generals, you right. know. And, you know, of course, we got to bill it as these are the best basketball players on the planet, and we got to throw a bunch of black guys in there, or it won't look real. You know? Right, because right. I mean, it, and it wouldn't. It would look. It would look strange for sure. You know, when I was a kid, um, I'm, I'm happy to say I, I knew him before he died. Um, are, are, is your generation even familiar with Pistol Pete Maravich? I think the diehards are. I, I, I grew up on Pistol Pete. Uh, I had like the dribbling tapes. So uh, yeah. and my my family is from Louisiana. So I actually didn't didn't know that about you. But yeah, my family is from uh, Alexandria, Baton Rouge, uh, New Orleans area. So I was you know Pistol Pete was gospel in my house. So. I think today's generation, the kids probably have no idea who he is unless they're a diehard basketball historian. Oh, it's funny because uh, I, I was, uh, I want to say it was about 20 years ago. I was in Beverly Hills and these kids were playing some pickup basketball and I walked on the court and I was started, you know, messing around with them and I suck at basketball. Like, you know, I was good. I made it on my high school team because I was good at, at um at defense and I was good at ball handling. I just couldn't shoot. You know, I just, I, I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Um, but I was good enough at causing assist, you know, getting the ball to the guy that could shoot and uh, a lot of defense. And, and I knew how to handle the ball because pistol taught me a few moves, you know, a few of his signature moves. And uh, I was showing these kids this move and they were like, wow, how, how did you even think of that? I said, I learned this from, and this is before Google or anything. We're talking right. 1992. I said, I learned this from the great Pistol Pete Maravich. And they were like, are you making that name up? I went, no, that was really a guy. And they're like, there's no way there was a guy named Pistol Pete Maravich. And there's no way. And said, no, he was the pistol. <laughs> I just couldn't sell it. And the reason I even bring Pistol up uh, again is, he was supposed to be the first white 
Globetrotter. Did you know that? Right. I did know and, that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, for whatever reason, he didn't do it, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, uh, and I mean, he really was a, a Harlem Globetrotter-style player. You know, he was he was flashy. He had all the passes. He had all the moves. Uh, and he could score, you know, like nobody else. It was He was incredible. Yeah, his ball handling skills. Uh, if you folks, if you go and watch this, go, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. People, in a lot of cases, still have not caught up with Pistol Pete today. You know, is is that kind of crazy? Or would you agree with that? I mean, you're around. You were around ball handlers. Yeah, I, I think Pistol Pete could play in today's NBA 100. percent And I don't think that that's true for a lot of the people who played during his time. But he was the type of athlete, the type of ball handler, had the vision and, and ability. He could play and be the same type of player in today's NBA. That's interesting that you would say that. Let, let's go through a couple of them. Uh, Larry Bird, could he play today? Yeah, 100%. Uh, of course, uh, Magic Johnson. Yeah, of course. Havlicek. Uh, Hondo was big enough, uh, but, you know, I, I don't know. That, that's the toss-up for me. Yeah, you you know what? I'm I'm agreeing with you on that. Uh, who who are we leaving out? Uh, oh, um, Julius Irving. Yeah, 100. percent Today's world. And and I think now, you know, there's just more Julius Irving caliber athletes. Uh, you know, guys that are tall and long and have that skill. Uh, I think when I think of players who, and it's interesting because I'm I'm close friends with the Stockton family, so. Um, I get to hear conversations from from John Stockton a lot about how much luck played into luck and timing played into his career. He believes um, because you know at the end of the day he's a six one six two white guy um, and you know doesn't look like an NBA player. And this is the guy who's all time leader in assists and steals in the NBA. So yeah, you know when you look at guys, you know, and, and I don't necessarily buy into all of his self deprecation, but you know, I think of guys who were, you know, big, stiff guys that played in the NBA years ago in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I don't think that they, even even at their size, would be able to fit on a roster today. I think of guys like my man Bill Wennington. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, I do, but I don't know much about him. That's the problem. Yeah. I can't. And I, I think just guys that were, you know, 10-year NBA veterans who were just big guys that took up a lot of space and were good players, but I just don't think that that would translate as much to today's game and today's athlete. All right, well, let's throw another one out there. All right. Bill Walton. Uh, you know what? Bill Walton can pa- could pass. He's like the best big man passer, one of the best big man passers of all time. And if he wasn't injured all the time and didn't have those bad feet, uh, he yeah. could, he could play in today's game. He's he was long and athletic. He was an athlete. Yeah, he was. You know, I've I've had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times. The guy is just behemoth. Uh, Huge <laughs> you guy. Stand yeah, um, but a really interesting guy. Uh, how far did you get in basketball? Obviously, you had to play D one at yeah, least. I played D two, so uh, I was I, I was a little bit of a late bloomer, but I played. I was a you know a a top player on my division two team. And then was just really willing to kind of mix it up. Um, and I went to these camps, uh, after college and was, you know, I, I had a better motor than a lot of those D one guys at my position. Um, and, you know, just played right at the right time and kind of developed into my own game. Uh, my junior and senior year of college. And then on into the first couple of years after I was done. 
cool. Uh, are you shocked that I know this much about basketball? No, but this is the most I've ever talked about basketball on my podcast, so it's kind of great. I love it. But, it, you know, look, you have an interesting story. Not everyone gets to be a Washington general. That's no, true. That's, just call it what it is, you know? And uh, people, look, I, I don't know if you've ever heard my podcast, but um, some, some days we don't even get to fitness, you know? Um, because it's got it, you got to keep it fun and interesting. And, um, you know, you get the message out there. You have people who are, uh, you know, uh, they know what the, 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 uh, diabetes, the type one diabetes message is all about, but it's good to sometimes, I think, you know, mix it up a bit. Yeah, I think so as well. And, you know, I tell people, people talk to me all the time. They're like, Oh, I feel like I was rambling. Uh, but that's gold to me whenever somebody's really, you know, speaking from the heart and kind of unplanned what they, you know, got deviated from whatever their script was going to be because, you know, what makes my interview different from all the other interviews that they've done. Um, and I think, you know, I, when I was looking at you and preparing for this interview, that's what I wanted. I wanted it to be not your everyday uh, Vinny Todorich interview. So, you know, I'm glad we were able to uh, to talk a little bit of basketball. That was a lot of fun. How yeah, it, it is, you know, and I, you know, I love basketball and I was good friends with a guy named Joe Dean who made Converse tennis shoes what it was back in the day. He was the guy that, that came up with the idea of connecting a player. We talked about Julius Irving. That's how I met Julius, uh, by the way, uh, was through Joe Dean. He decided to hook uh, a shoe to a player and make it, you know, and that became a thing. They yeah. did that with Larry Bird. They did it with uh, Magic. They did it with, uh, of course... The most famous of all of them, um, Joe's biggest regret was he let um, Michael Jordan go to Nike out of college. Um, and the only reason Jordan didn't want to go to Converse at the time was because they had Bird and Magic and uh, Dr. J was still on the roster and so on and so forth. Uh, and he was like, I'm going to get lost here. And Joe said to him, look, you need to do what you got to do. And he went to Nike and look what happened. You know, right. <laughs> the Air Jordans and the Air the you know, good move on his part. But, uh, yeah, you know, that's how I kind of know a little bit about this was because the guy who became the, the athletic director at LSU eventually, um, was a close friend of mine. Uh, we just, uh, we buried him about two years ago. Very sad. Hmm. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I hope your buddy Jodine, I mean, I'm sure he did, but I hope he didn't lose too much sleep over, uh, telling 20 year old Michael Jordan to do what, do what he had to do. Uh, and then, you know, obviously he became who he became. Well, no, he didn't because that, that's who Joe is. You know, Joe knew that this guy might get lost at Converse. You know, it's hard to believe now because Converse doesn't even make a court shoe anymore. They, right. they you know, they're selling uh, Chuck Taylor's to, to young Asian girls. So, you know, they're not even doing what they did. Right when Joe was there and um, but he he never had a problem with telling uh, Michael to go over to Nike because he was that kind of guy, you know, and uh, and I, I would like to think that I'm a little bit like him in life. I, I, there's no way any of us can be like Joe Dean, but I would like to think that I, I even mentioned him in my book, Fitness Confidential. You know, he we I talked about him and how he would talk to me about failure quotient. You know, the number of times, it doesn't matter how many times you succeed in life, it's the number of times you can fail and come back, you know, your FQ. And I had to include that in my book, you know, because um, how can you not, if you have an opportunity to write a book, how can you not let other people know that, that message? 
Well, yeah, and I want to, since we're on the topic, I think like failure quotient is so essential to, and I, I don't know if I've ever heard it called that, which I really like. Um, it's so essential to life as a diabetic because, you know, like you said earlier, you understand that every single day you're dealing with the same, uh, you know, tests, dosing insulin, counting carbs, uh, you know, thinking one, uh, you know, adding extra steps to travel, to exercise, and you are going to fail. And I think the, there's this idea perpetuated by social media that there are these people who only have perfect blood sugars all the time. So you tend to look at yourself very harshly when you have a, a reading that's outside of range. And, I, you know, a lot of people, I think, struggle with that. So, But at the same time, you know, being able to embrace the failures and accept and celebrate the successes is, you know, essential. I, I think you're right, and I think it's important. Um, and I, I think what you're doing over there is literally, you know, uh, you know, God's work. You know, and I'm glad there are guys like out there, like you out there, doing it. Uh, are there very many diabetes podcasts? Uh, there are a few. There, there. I mean, there are four or five. Uh, but yeah, it's not a very populated space. Um, diabetes, especially type one, is sort of coming into its own. Um, in the media and having a voice and these communities are sprouting up. Um, but yeah, it's not a, not a very crowded space. So I've got, um, I've got one, there's one called uh, the juice box podcast. There's one called the beta cell podcast. Um, and we all kind of have our own different, uh, different audiences within type one diabetes. One's more for parents. One's more on the research side. Uh, mine's more lifestyle and telling the stories of, uh, of, of people. Uh, I, I'll do this on air so that you can't tell me no. Okay. Um, but you can cut it out because this is your show. I'm not taping it. Uh, would you be interested in coming on my podcast to promote your podcast and talk about type one diabetes? Because ever since I had that problem way back when, where we opened up the conversation about diabetes, we haven't really gone back to it a whole lot. Uh, we talk about type two all the time. We never talk about type one, and I promise to continue to do that. Would you? Would you come on to my show, which I think can help your show? Um, you know, you can find some audience there. Absolutely, I would love to. Cool, good. Well, we will make that happen, and, and we could do twenty minutes of uh, Washington Generals talk. Yeah, please. I'll have to get all. I have to brush up on all my Globetrotters uh, history. <laughs> I, I'd love to do that. Hey, I got I got to go in a second because okay. uh, I was supposed to be done at four, and then I tweet I uh, texted the guy and said, "Can you give me a few more minutes of talking about the Harlem Globetrotters?" And he's <laughs> probably one that man. Um, okay, but um, do they still? Last question for you because okay. I'm still excited about these Globetrotters. Do they use the same names like Curly and all that, or do they go with different names now? So they have different names because. Uh, you know, Curly is still around, so um, or I, he may have passed away a year or so ago. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I want to say he's still alive. So he will come um, as an ambassador and, and, you know, show up, and the crowd goes nuts. He'll spin the ball on his finger and wave and smile. Um, so they all have different names now, but they do pick uh, nicknames. All right, so but do any of them use the old names, or is it all? Because Curly was so iconic, right. so I shouldn't have used him. Um, I'm sure that there are some like, you know, Tomahawk or like, you know, uh, I'm sure that there are names that get used uh, over and over that are more less sort of timeless than, you know, a Curly or a Metal Arc Lemon. Yeah. Um, there, there, I will give you this one tidbit though, uh, because you know, I don't work for them anymore. I can tell you whatever I want. Um, 
if you ever go to a Globetrotter show and you see a Globetrotter named Crash, he will be what's called a contract player. So he's a guy that they'll just call up. Uh, he won't travel with the team 100% of the time. So he typically only does like one crazy trick. Um, but a guy named Crash is a guy who's trying to make a, a Globetrotter roster, but he only, you know, he's sort of like a training camp guy. And uh, is there just one main team, or is there different teams going around now? Uh, there are three teams throughout the globe at any time. Wow. So there's three Washington Generals, three Globetrotters, three of everything. Yep. Wow. Did not know that. Yeah, they do, I think, 500 or so shows a year worldwide. Wow. That, that, that organization has to be worth billions, right? Uh, I, I think it was purchased by a private equity firm a few years ago. Um, and I think it, they're struggling in the age of social media because it's, you know, the secret, the, the magic of a Globetrotter show is sort of out there, uh, right? So kids can Google stuff and they're like, oh, well, these generals guys always lose. Um, so I think there's, there's a little bit of, uh, of adjustment that they're doing there, a little bit of tweaking, but, you know, globally it's most people's first impression live of above the rim basketball, of professional basketball. Um, and I think it's been so instrumental in growing the game globally like that, you know, the NBA has done of, of late, but really of the last 50 years, uh, you know, I think Dirk Nowitzki talks about, you know, the first time he ever saw an American play basketball was the Globetrotters. And, you know, he's the five, the yeah. fifth the fifth leading scorer in NBA history now, right? So, you know, we're talking about, you know, years and generations of people who have loved and seen the Globetrotters. Wow. It's pretty incredible. That, that is amazing. Uh, um, okay, and I know, I know you got to, I know you got to go. So let me, I got to ask you the one question I ask everybody who's ever been on my podcast. So, for you, it might be a little bit different. Uh, you got time for one more? Yeah, yeah. I'll just uh, if the guy calls, I'll just call him back. I, <laughs> I, I'm I'm loving this way too much. Okay, great. I, I I'm enjoying it as well. So the question is uh, that I always ask is like uh, you got to take the context the context into effect here. So you're in an airport. Uh, they're gonna close the door to your gate in 30 seconds, and you can't miss the flight. It's a can't miss. You got to be on the other, on the ground at the other end. But you run into somebody who has either been recently diagnosed or is struggling with living with type one diabetes. So, for people who have type one diabetes, it's a little you know it's a little bit more close to their heart. But for you, what's the one thing that you say to that person before you got to jump on the flight and get out of there? Wow. Um, see, my head is already somewhere else. Um, and I've, I've done this kind of, I know this is going to make me sound like the world's biggest douchebag, <laughs> but that person just found out and I'm getting on a flight. Well, yeah. Uh, so, well, yeah. Unless, it, unless I'm a bearer in my mom's funeral, I'm not getting on the flight. I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. Um, I have this thing in life and I know this is going to sound crazy and it's, I think it's why my popularity has grown on the internet. Um, I care about people too much. Um, I don't have any religion. I grew up in a Roman Catholic family, and uh, I denounced that after the nuns beat me to, to death. Um, but my religion is to take care of your fellow man, to do what you can to help other people around you. And I know this makes me sound like the world's biggest douchebag, but unless, I mean, I could be the best man in the wedding, I will probably stay there with that person and talk to them. 
So it wouldn't be, there is no one word you could say to someone who just found out that they have a problem like that. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. I love it. And I have done things like that where I've missed vacations and missed, you know, where I went, no, I, I got to go do this. And does it drive my family up one wall and down another? Yes, it does. It absolutely does. But it's just who I am. I'm, you know, and I'm sorry, I just sounded like the world's biggest douchebag, but there you have it. No, no, no. I, uh, you know, it is who you are, Vinny, and I'm uh, really glad that we got to talk. Uh, and, you know, thank you for, for taking the time and for pushing back your other call as well. Um, man, I'm looking, for, looking forward to our next conversation. Well, it will happen soon. Uh, let's cut the mics off so that we can schedule this before I let you go. Let's do it.